Episode 239, Felice B. Eckelman and Julie P. Cantor, authors of Thrive with a Hybrid Workplace. And I think my mistake was, was staying as long as I did. My thought was to talk about a recent mistake in the sense that I'm, you know, many decades into my career. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Julie, Felice, their book and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraben.com slash mistake 239. As always, thanks for listening. Well, hi, welcome back to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven. Our guests today are Felice Eckelman, an employment lawyer, and Julie Cantor, a business psychologist and executive coach. They are authors together of the new book, Thrive with a Hybrid Workplace, Step-by-Step Guidance from the Experts. So before I tell you a little bit more about Julie and Felice, welcome to the podcast. How are you both doing today? Great to be here. Great to be here, Mark. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to talk about the book, and we're going to hear your favorite mistake stories. But uh, Julie P. Cantor, PhD, again, a business psychologist, executive coach, advisor, and founder of J.P. Cantor Consulting. She's a regular contributor to Forbes on leadership and employee engagement. She's coming to us from New York City, as is Felice, Felice B. Eckelman, J.D. She's a principal of Jackson Lewis, P.C., where she practices employment law. Felice has been quoted in Bloomberg News, The Wall Street Journal, Lexology, and Law 360. So um, I, we, we didn't exactly flip a coin, but we're trying to think whose favorite mistake story goes first. I think, Julie, I'm, I'm going to direct the question uh, to you. What would you say is your favorite mistake? Um, yeah, first of all, it was an interesting reflection, and I actually went back to relatively early in my career. Um, I was working at an employee assistance program, um, which, for those of you who don't know, is basically an internal, an external program. It's changed over time, but uh, really where it's prepaid um, benefit that um, employees, uh, employers are providing for employees, which are becoming more important now, given um, this integration of work and home and the challenges of of um, of hybrid work. But back then I was an employee is the operational word here. Um, I was an account manager uh, for a couple of major financial institutions. And over time, I was relatively young in my career. I started building out their consulting division. And I was having a really good time and feeling quite comfortable in my position that I was an employee um, having a regular paycheck and um, sort of riding it out and not appreciating what the business end. I think that's really the lesson learned in that I was building out, there was a small startup at the time. I was building out a division that hadn't existed, quite honestly, that wasn't necessarily their initial um, ask um, of what they, their initial proposal of their business. It was doing very well. And I was relatively low on the totem pole, but I saw enough of the financials 
um, to see that the amount of money that I was bringing in for a project was literally, I think it was four times my annual salary. Um, and I was doing this for quite a while. And honestly, it was, it took me a while to have the confidence and the knowledge to leave. Um, and I think my mistake was, was staying as long as I did. Um, and I will tell you, um, that it wasn't actually, I wish I could, I could tell you it was just the maturity of me realizing, take the leap, Julie, be on your own, start the business, you know, you know, you know, financially, obviously it's a risk to go from a regular paycheck to, as someone once said to me, when you're on you own your own business. The good news is you control everything. The bad news is you control everything. But the last thing, and I think this is why I raise this, because it's a poignant story. Um, I went to the managing partner again. I was relatively junior. And I presented this pretty, you know, basic proposal. It was two pages. And the first page was all the specifics of what it, the, what the services were, the deliverables, et cetera, et cetera. And I turned the page over and he's and the operational word is a he. And he said to me, well, what's this? And I said, because I had presented the whole proposal and he said, what's this? And I said, well, this is the information we need to collect to see if we're going to make money on it. Because again, I was getting exposed to the finances and hello, as little junior associate, I was seeing it. Um, and his words to me were, and I quote, don't worry your pretty little head about that. Eesh. That's my job. Yikes. And that, you know, between uh, it being too long and, you know, me, again, sort of all these factors that were coming together, it was enough to say, take the risk. Mm. Um, yeah. So I think my message perhaps was, was leave early, earlier if you weren't going to get that told to you. Wow. Um, so in, in terms of timeframes, Julian, th thank you for, for sharing with that with us. How, how long did, was that time period inside building this practice for, uh, for your employer? And, and how long was it when you were wondering or thinking, I'd like to leave, I should leave, if, even if you didn't feel yet like you could? The time of me thinking of it was pretty early because it was after my first project. Well, you saw the financials. But I saw the financials. And again, I saw, the, I don't remember what they were, but I think they were literally four times for a project that I marketed, developed, and delivered. So it was relatively on. And so I just kept building it. My guess, it was about a year and a half um, of continuing to do this and seeing the business grow. Um, again, so I was seeing the financials repeating. It was just like, and I was relatively young. I was um, in my early 30s and I was just, you know, thinking about all the things I could be buying. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that what you experience isn't uncommon. I've been a consultant as an employee for organizations. And yeah, there's, there, you, you see the multiple of what they're billing the client versus what you're getting paid. And you're like, okay, sure. There's some, some overhead, but yeah, it's kind of an eye popping number. I, I eventually had an opportunity to go independent um, as, as, as well. So, I mean, I, I don't think that company that, that was, was uniquely, um, you know, sticking it to you there, but I, I recognize, you know, I appreciate you recognizing um, 
the opportunity to go independent. But was was it was it that that inappropriate comment where you you thought to quote a song of a different era, take this job and shove it? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think it was it was the comment was just really the final straw. Um, yeah. yeah, I think it was building the confidence to do it. Um, I think it was I'm probably inherently not a risk taker. Um, that was part of it. Quite honestly, I am a clinical psychologist, so I had enough private practice um, business. So I wasn't going going to go from zero to nothing. And so there's obviously a financial component of when you're moving. Um, And the other reality is, is that my spouse was taking care of the mortgage. So I appreciate these are these are realities. You know, you don't need Nothing. Um, so they clearly were all part of, I think, the building of it. Um, and, and I just you raise a really good point in terms of this issue of um, transparency. And I will tell you my own business when I have um, colleagues work for me, I basically bring in folks under 1099. I'm really transparent about the division of the income of what you know I'm receiving and what they are I'm really transparent about it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Felice, I'm, I'm not asking you to go back in time and advise Julie on her specific case, but just general question for you of hearing Julie's story. What's your reaction? And in particular, you know, if somebody is leaving a company to start a business that in a way would be competing with that business or are there, there risks or things to worry about? You know, it depends on a whole lot. You know, is your business one that has to be scalable so that you really can go at it alone from the beginning? You need some partners or some colleagues to work with you. You know, do you have the stomach for the financial risk? Um, Because that's a, a big part of it. And frankly, like Julie, I'm not much of a risk taker. When uh, I've gone to Las Vegas for work, I still have never even put a (laughs) coin in a slot machine because, you know, I'd rather get something for my money than just uh, throw it away. So um, uh, I had thought about my mistake as well. And it's I don't know if you want me to lunge into it, but it's really kind of the point counterpoint of Julie. So Mm -hmm. she described sort of a coming of age realization early in her career. Um, My thought was to talk about a recent mistake in the sense that I'm, you know, many decades into my career. And just to give a little more background, um, I am a management side labor and employment attorney. And uh, I have been at Jackson Lewis my entire career, and it is extraordinarily unusual in today's day and age to, as a lawyer in private practice, to have, you know, one firm association. And, you know, that happened for a bunch of different reasons. Number one, um, I found a place that was supportive and uh, I have uh, been able to grow my business and be a leader both within the firm as well as a thought leader outside of the firm. But it wasn't until, but I'm I'm dated. So I'm dated in the sense that um, like Julie, um, I had children uh, at a fairly young age early in my career and, you know, struggled with what we now call work-life balance that 
didn't exist as a term of art. And it was, you know, a heck of a lot easier to just stay put, frankly, where I was a known quantity and where I had the support that I needed. Today, we would not call the support that I had support, but (laughs) a lot more is expected of employers today uh, than uh, decades ago. But let me get to my point. Mm -hmm. I had never heard the term personal brand until very recently. And uh, when I finally began to understand what personal brand meant, I realized my biggest mistake was not thinking about developing a personal brand from the beginning of my career. My career was subsumed uh, in uh, my employer. Uh, obviously, now I'm uh, I'm uh, a partner. I've been a partner for a very long time. We call ourselves principals, but it's the same the same thing. I'm an owner and have been for many decades, but. Um, Uh, I have really never thought of this concept. And I think for professionals, uh, it's extraordinarily important to start thinking about your personal brand from the get-go. So what what opened your eyes to that, Felice, that that kind of made you think, well, hmm, in hindsight, this was a mistake? I had never uh, participated in um, any kind of women's support network. And um, I had joined a women's support network organization a number of years ago that was for uh, leaders. And everyone was talking about this thing called personal brand. Mm, And I had never heard of it. (laughs) It took me a while to understand what it means. And um, I would say uh, it was uh, only the last couple of years that I... uh, have come to understand how important it is for new professionals, particularly since most professionals um, don't stick around in one job, maybe don't even stick around in one career, you know, might move from industry to industry, might move to uh, different uh, positions or areas of expertise within an industry. Um, And uh, it's important to define yourself uh, and uh, your personal journey, your personal professional journey. And um, uh, that was a mistake, but I think, um, I don't think it's fatal. Well, clearly not um, with with your success and the firm's success. So it's funny, you know, you're talking about personal branding. Um, Tom Peters, the legendary leadership management consultant, he's been a guest on this podcast. He wrote a book, just over 25 years ago called The Brand Called You. I think he was one of the people really popularizing or, or spreading um, that that idea. So, you know, Felice, I'm, I'm curious, like, as, as you've thought about this now and, and you're representing yourself as a author, you, you have your book out together here, what, what, what would you say your brand represents and, and how closely does that have to align to the brand of your firm as, as an owner and a, a principal? Well, they 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 have to be consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're you'd have a hard time uh, fitting in in an organization if it was not consistent. But there's a lot of room. Uh, there's a lot of room to personalize what you do and how you do it. So um, I think um, my personal brand is to really support clients 
and to be a problem solver. And when I look back uh, on my career, I have been working with some clients uh, for more than 30 years. And uh, there are some organizations where I'm the person with the most seniority, even though I'm the outside lawyer. Um, And really uh, um, understanding your role and then explaining it to clients and prospective clients why you're different and why you're different. Uh, You're going to bring a different kind of counsel to them because there are lots of management side employment lawyers out there. And one has to distinguish oneself. And I think the personal brand is is part of the way one can do that. And I'm sure that's that's the case in any industry, you know, certainly for consultants and the like. But for any leader, um, you know, they have to be self-aware enough to understand how their leadership and how their thought process makes them uh, a different a different kind of uh, um, a different kind of advisor. So um, Julie is suggesting uh, that I talk a little bit about what I do. And uh, as a management side employment lawyer, obviously I defend litigation against companies brought by employees. I provide management training. I help with policy. Uh, development. I also have a traditional labor law practice where I represent employers whose employees are represented by unions. Um, And uh, I help employers be better employers. I think that's uh, one way to look at it. And one of the reasons why this book has been a joy for both Julia and I getting to thrive with a hybrid workplace is because we really wrote it as a how-to guide to help leaders lead better. And, you know, we are at a moment where um, there's a lot going on in the world of work in the United States. We have five different generations of employees working in the same place. That is crazy. Um, And that brings a whole host of, of new challenges. We have an incredibly diverse workplace. Again, brings new challenges. And we have um, changing technology, uh, which also provides so many opportunities, but also creates new challenges. And flexible work arrangements, and that's what hybrid work is. Hybrid work is a flexible approach to white collar work, is really just a flexible work arrangement that is a product of all of these different forces and changes. And so when Julie and I had the opportunity to put this book together, we really wanted to make it user-friendly. She focused on some areas, I focused on others, but the one constant is that at the end of every chapter or every, you know, meaty discussion, we have a list of you know, specific action items for leaders. And so what we wanted this book to be is not just something you read from beginning to end, but we wanted it to be a resource uh, so that leaders could pick it up, go to chapter five on culture, or I'm sorry, that's not the chapter, but go to the chapter (laughs) on culture, go to the chapter on ESG, go to the chapter on policy writing and uh, read it. Mm -hmm. And so um, maybe turn to Julie here. I, I, you know, I'd love to hear the story of, of how the two of you came to co-author 
the book and how that came to be. Has has uh, Felice talked with you, Julie, about you know personal brand and what have you thought about what that means for you? What does that mean for the two of you together working toward a book? Because I think Felice summarized real well. Brand is not the logo and the colors. It's it's what you represent or what people think of you in a way. Yeah, I mean, I was trying to get police because she's actually being pretty modest when she was talking about her brand. And I was trying to get her to give an example. Um, but I will tell you how we came together and it will share to you what Felice's brand is. Um, and it's actually, um, Felice and I have actually known each other for two decades, Felice, probably. About that. Um, professionally, um, we weren't, Friends. I mean, we were friendly. We go. I think we went to lunch a couple of times, um, and our work. We were not regularly together. It was not. We were regularly together. But but what happened was there were periods of time um, because I'm working with um, um, with businesses, and I generally work with leadership teams or individual leaders, um, helping them be more effective. I'll be generically right, and police is generally going in organizationally when there's a larger issue and when there's a problem. Again, the, we talk about, I'm there to grow through, Felicia said um, for um, levels of, uh, when there's risk. Risk avoidance. Risk avoidance, thank you. And so over time, over the years, what the reason we would refer back to each other, one is I was working with each other and it was generally, I'm sorry, a man who was harassing a woman and the company started getting into legal problems. And, you know, it starts out as a small performance problem. And then you have a woman make a complaint. And I call Felice and then hand it over to Felice. And it becomes an issue in terms of them dealing with risk. In contrast, Felice has called me with an issue when she's dealing with a larger company. And it turns out that there's one person who is creating culture that is a hostile work environment or where there's a culture where, where there's an individual harassment, and she would call me. So what happened during, um, when we went into lockdown, we, um, a mutual colleague of ours, who's an HR person um, at a book publisher, she actually reached out to the two of us to write a book on work from home. And we started writing it. And this was, and this is significant, we were writing it in June of, in March of 2020, we were in lockdown and we were all working from home. Um, and the publisher pulled the book. And the fact is, he should have pulled the book because we were working from home for three, we, 100% of white collars were, but that wasn't. And so it was actually, so we started problem solving um, about this, high, this as hybrid was working. And Felice and I were talking about what we were seeing. And that is where we came to the fact of, well, you could approach hybrid just from the legal challenges, or you could approach like just from the leadership challenges of growth. It would make sense to create one-stop shopping. Um, and so we wrote the book during COVID. We literally did not see each other because it was during COVID, during the writing of the book. Um, but going back to where I say in terms of Felice um, and her brand that she was modest about if you if I just heard about her describing the way that she would describe an interest and knowledge of a individual right when Felice goes in she's talking with an entire union I mean it, you know she's generally dealing with organization you know they're big organizations they're big unit big unions that you and I know about that Felice is or you know negotiating this is big stuff and the fact that she 
is aware to both the bigger picture of how things are going, as well as the individual um, and seeing what's going on to them, that is unusual. Um, and police, we found and I should have said this to each other, but I, you know, if I had to pick police's brand, um, that's it. If I had to describe my own brand, um, I take um, being competent and de- delivering high level competence to my clients very seriously. Um, and one of my lines is, I take, don't take myself, my, I take, I don't take myself seriously, but I take my work very seriously. Mm-hmm. That's, that's great. Uh, and I, I've heard people say, like, you, you can try as an individual or maybe as an organization to say, here, here's what we think our brand represents. But really, I've heard people say, it's really what other people say. Like you could be fooling yourself about what well, we think our brand or company, we stand for excellence and innovation. Well, really what matters is what your customers or the marketplace, if they disagree, your brand is what people think it is. So it's nice to hear, Julie, your articulation of what Felice's brand represents. And I, I, I would say we actually talk about that exact fact in Mark, Mark in the book. Um, we use the language in terms of value proposition um, that, you know, you can say you're really work family friendly, um, but it, again, it's exactly the same thing. Work friendly me ultimately boils down to does your leader email you at three in the morning and expect an email back at three thirty? Um, so, you know, we talk then we have very specific examples of these value, you, you know, you can call them value propositions, missions, values, um, strategic strategy. It ultimately boils down to exactly what you said about we people work are what they say. And there are specific examples in the book about that. And and the book is focused on helping leaders create organizations that are employers of choice. So what's an employer of choice? It's it's a company people want to work for. Why? Because what they do is important, how they do it is is recognized as positive and they recognize the importance of their employees. So, you know, I I speak to a lot of leaders and HR folks and leaders. And last week I was uh, outside of Chicago speaking to a group of leaders in the manufacturing industry. And we talked a lot about being an employer of choice. And one of the things we talk about in the book is take a look at your mission statement. Most employers, uh, most companies have created this thing called a mission statement. And if your mission statement does not mention your employees, maybe you should rethink it. Right. Yeah. Um, And and there's also then that, I think that category of, where companies say something about the employees, but it doesn't really reflect reality. Well, that's a problem. I'm not sure which is a bigger problem of of not saying it or saying right. it, and not meaning it. Um, but when you think about mistakes that leaders or organizations might make in hybrid workplace environments, I think it's fascinating the combination of your background. So let me ask it this way: like, what what, what are some mistakes that might lead to a leader needing coaching and counseling, and which are the mistakes that might get them sued? That's a really that's a really good question. question. That's a so really Ju- question. Julie. I don't know. Maybe the the question of what would require counseling or coaching directed toward you? No, I think that's a really good question. Um, 
you know, the thing, one of the things I say is I have a, I had a job as, you know, coaching leaders and executives before COVID and now they need coaching on steroids um, mm-hmm. because, you know, one of the words we talk about in the book is intentionality that leaders need to think about things. They just don't know how to think. Um, and, you know, a big part of it is I would say, what is building culture? What is, which includes, right, this amorphous thing, what happens when, when you, right, when people are not in the room and what they say, how are they pulling together? How are they communicating? And most um, leaders now don't appreciate the work they have to do and how to do it to pull a team together, to communicate, to let, collaborate. Um, a lot of the conversations today are, are we in two days a week versus three days a week? together and you're in on Mondays and I'm in on Tuesdays and Felice is on Wednesdays. There's no purpose for any of us being in the office. And so <laughs> yeah. it, what, what, what leaders really need um, is the issue of um, what's the purpose of, you know, them uh, being in the office. So I have an example that I had, if Felice is going to be able to turn over to what she would, um, how she'd handle it. Um so I'm working with the um, uh, head of um, equity um, at one of the major banks. And during COVID, during sales, they all had to work from home. And so COVID ended and they wanted somebody co- to come back. And there was one salesperson who was very effective, very effective, didn't want to come back. And the, and the, the level of decision, and again, police can talk about this and where the decision is made. The level of decision in this bank was at the top and it was a mandated that they could take off. They had to be in the office eight days a month. They had one person, one person, she had one person, this top salesperson who was refusing to come into the office. At all. Not at uh, all. Yeah. At all. Mm. And the interesting thing was the head of the organization was willing to make the exception. Now, this is sitting again in my camp, right? Was willing to make the exception. He's a, he's a talented, and from a leadership standpoint, he said, I don't want to set this example for the rest of my team. I can survive financially it's for a million plus dollars of lost revenue. What I can't do is survive from a standpoint of, you know, um, the 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 um, culture impact, and so it was a big issue of who was going to write who. So I will turn it to Felice to say what would happen if, in fact, the you know head of the organization won, and they let this guy be an exception. And I think this will hand you into where they would where it could potentially somebody would call Felice. Yeah, and and one of the things we talk about in the book extensively is creating a policy. And while um, uh, certainly leaders in the C-suite have to endorse the policy, you know, they need to have buy-in from everyone. And everyone on the management team has to recognize that whatever the policy is makes sense and is in the best interest of the organization. And I've been talking a lot to clients about resetting 
uh, their hybrid or flexible work po uh, policies because many came out with a policy, you know, in 2022 uh, that's really not supporting uh, growth and creation of uh, a workplace where uh, they can attract and retain talent. So one of the issues that um, comes up a lot is how do you make exceptions to a policy? Should a policy have room for exceptions? And here I'm going to get a little legal. There are two kinds of exceptions. One, for accommodations that are required by law, and you do have to accommodate employees based on disability, which can be physical or emotional, mental, or uh, exceptions based on religion. And so those two types of uh, uh, exceptions are accommodations, legally required accommodations. All the other exceptions, which I'll call deal-making, um, are problematic because you're creating, every time you make an exception to a rule, you're creating an inconsistency. And when you create inconsistency in how you treat employees, you're setting the stage for someone to complain that the inconsistency is in itself evidence of an unlawful practice. So let's say there were two people and someone, one is a man, one is a woman, and one asked for not an accommodation, but a side deal to not report to work as often as the policy requires. And the man's request is granted and the woman's request is not granted. Grace, yeah. Based solely on these facts, what's mm -hmm. the distinguishing factor? Gender. Mm -hmm. So, um, so that is how policymaking, uh, when it's not well thought out and when it's not adhered to properly because of the absence of consistent buy-in, can lead to, uh, you know, disgruntled employees and possibly litigation. Mm. And so is, how, how did that settle out then? Did did the organization say, well, we've got to let that salesperson go or did because of the precedent and or legal risk oh, for, for me yeah yes what happened in your case julie no the head of equity prevailed the head of equity prevailed um so he had a you know basically the tit for tat the issue challenge was between him and his boss um because he was not willing he had a good culture in his team um and he was not willing to and he, he was the one who it was actually a shit it was trying to blend it it was actually a, uh, without the name um he was not willing to, it was not willing to cost the culture and the, what it would be in, in his team. And he was willing to give up the revenue of one person. It was a huge statement. It was a huge statement. And not everybody right made decision, it. decision, right? Well, that's why I fed it over to Lise. Because for, for Lise, because had he not, he would have been in the position where somebody would be calling her. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Wow. Um. So with all these 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 new challenges, and, and again, the book um, written by Julie Cantor and Felice Eckelman is Thrive with a Hybrid Workplace, Step-by-Step -step Guidance from the Experts. Um, what, one other thing I wanted to ask you about, um, one thing you, you touch on in the book is, you know, old biases to look out for and and, and maybe, you know, new any bias is bad, but are, are there certain holdover biases that would lead to mistakes or prevent somebody from thriving, you know, when, when they're trying to design or manage this hybrid workplace now? What do you mean by biases here? Well, the, the one that comes to light that's the most obvious one is called proximity bias. And that is simply uh, the intentional or unintentional uh, act of favoring folks 
who are closer to you physically. So um, early on, as um, employees were making their way back to work, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that we cite to in the book about how to make the most of proximity bias and game the hybrid uh, system by getting ahead faster. And how do you do that? You show up every day in the office when no one else is there to demonstrate that you're there the most, to show that you're the most committed, and more importantly, to be there in case an opportunity should arise. So the best example I can think of for proximity bias is I'm in my office today. It's (laughs) Friday, by the way. Almost no one's here. But there are a couple of junior attorneys who are here today. I could be getting a phone call from a prospective client, and I want to get a junior attorney involved in this new opportunity. Instead of, you know, texting or emailing or teams uh, calling uh, another associate, I can just grab one of the folks that I saw on my way to the ladies room before we began recording, pull that person in because they happen to be there. Yeah. And and so then what, what what kind of legal risk does that open up at some point? Is it is it legal risk then if if there there's if people claim favoritism or discrimination? Well, it could be legal risk if all employees have the right to work on a hybrid basis, and if most employees, again, I'm going to oversimplify this example, and then let's just make this a gender claim again. Women take advantage of the hybrid opportunity because they tend to be caregivers more often, and men don't bother because, you know, they can come to work more readily because they don't have caregiving responsibilities. Right, right, right. Okay. And, you know, as a result of proximity bias over and over again, Mm -hmm. opportunities can fall disproportionately in favor of the men who are in the office more. Again, I'm just giving you uh, a broad brush about how proximity bias can create um, situations that feel unfair. The other the other thing is, if these opportunities lead to um, visibility in an organization, uh, growth and development as a professional, then the women in my example are not having the same opportunities to grow professionally and perhaps will not do as well when it comes to promotional opportunities. Mm-hmm. And, and And so even if the decision making, even in your case, you see someone on the way to or even in the ladies room and you pass along that opportunity, like the decisions are not being made consciously on a gender basis. Is it fair to say then, well, look at the outcome, at least it provides appearance. And it does that then become a, a, yeah, well, a case you, you might know, lose? Whether decisions are unlawful is, is a long way off. Most employers don't ever want to have decision-making viewed from a legal standpoint. They only want to have their decisions viewed from a fairness standpoint. And, you know, creating an environment that feels unfair is is not good for an organization because sure, sure. you lose people, you can't attract people. You know, it, it, the cost of training and developing talent is very, very high. So, Julie, I'm sorry I interrupted. No, I was going to say, so, you know, Felice and I have talked about this issue of 
proximity bias in terms of like legally. And I said, the reality is exactly what she said. She's going to walk down and get somebody. And one of the things, you know, that I've been working with, with leaders and you asked sort of this thing in terms of history and changing, right. And what are the old ways that are hard? One of the things that you see, and this is generationally, right, that, you know, especially young generations who have not experienced a five-day work week, they literally, the first two years of work, they were working at home and they haven't had what I call the commodity of being in the office five days a week where you build a work, you know, family and there's some predictability. There is commodity there. Um, And so you have the difference between, you know, leaders who are older and they expect employees to to um, be in the office and they don't appreciate exactly what Lee said. Also this issue, which I talk a lot about in the book in terms of connection that again, from the, in the past, you didn't have to think about it where now, if you're, if we're working together and I have my phone, you know, I'm going to have my video off every single time and you need it to be an issue. You have a question, even this, you get a call police. And things that in terms of coaching leaders is helping them learn how to, you know, basically help leaders be better leaders, right? And how do they work to coach their folks to do these things? Mm. Um, I think a lot of things in terms of this change of, you know, sort of the old ways is the difference in the appreciation that we need to think about how we communicate. Uh, We have many different, you know, it used to be we were all in the office. We didn't have to think about it, right? You didn't, you know, you'd have to send an email, you walk down and now I can't sit in my, e- I mean, I know people who literally they're emailing people <laughs> literally back and forth because I don't have to get up. Yeah. Um, so now there are so many different modes of communications and, um, and there's a variation that leaders have to think about it that in terms of, again, they didn't have to use to think about it. Um, and there's a gap between even just email and Slack that most younger folks prefer have their Slack channels as as back, you know, as complex as older folks' um, email channels. And leaders, in terms of changing from the old ways, leaders have to break create that bridge. Um, and one of the things I talk about in the book and one of the sections that I put in there is I call the communication charter. Let's sit down and talk about when you have these kinds of things, you put it in a Slack. When you have these kinds of things, and I am. When you have these kinds of things, it's an email. And these kinds of things, it's it's can be like talk about those and create some standards. So, um, some so communication is a big thing that that sort of this old way, and then you add on top of that the um, generational change. Yeah, yeah. And I, I I run I still get confused personally. Well, I'm 50, and I do a lot of work with a tech company. People who are 20 years younger, and I still don't understand sometimes. Why are they doing Slack? And so we're, we already had email, but I'm have, showing Have you, have you ever old. asked them sometimes to screen share with you the list and see their their Slack channels? Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, it is incredible. <laughs> yeah. And maybe, you know, I, I'm, I'm not saying the problem is them. It's just me trying to adapt <laughs> and adjust or well. And we also had text messages. And so, yeah. And sometimes people will use all three channels. <laughs> within within the same day, so right, exactly. And which are they using? And I've, and sometimes you have people who don't read their emails. I had working yeah. with some. Oh. And they said, you haven't been at the meeting. He says, I don't know. He says, I sent you an email. So I don't read my emails. <laughs> That's hard. Does yeah. Okay. 
it's hard to imagine, but uh, there we go. So we have all the, you know, all these changes and maybe a final question for, for you both, you know, um, you're describing what has been happening and what's happening now. Um, where, where do you think this is headed? There seems, there seems like there's more and more headlines about, nope, hybrid remote time is done, going back to office, got to come back in. Is are, are things moving in a consistent direction toward more hybrid workplaces or is it going to be more of a pendulum? I'll take this one first, Julie. I'll go out on a limb. And I have been saying flexible work arrangements are here to stay. Hybrid work is one of them because that can include teams where there are folks who are remote who never come to an office, teams where there are employees who report to an office every day, and teams where there are employees who report to an office some but not all of the time. So I do think flexible work arrangements are here to stay. I think we're going to see more flexibility around the four-day work week. I think we're going to continue to see this evolve, but I think hybrid work and understanding the challenges of hybrid work and learning how to um, lead in a hybrid workplace is going to make a leader a better leader as we look at more technology, as we look at more pressure for employers to be flexible in order to attract and retain talent. So I think the skills that we discuss in the book are skills that leaders will find helpful today and into the future. It's a great closing argument, Felice. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's what I do for a living. <laughs> but Julie, what what are your thoughts? What, I mean, are, you, what are your thoughts on this? There's no doubt it's here to stay. That hybrid's here to stay. I think the piece of what is open is what are the different hybrid models. And again, the first chapter of the book is about all the different hybrid models. So what, what's gone is people going into the office metaphorically five days a week because most people have longer days than that but I really, but that is gone and it's gone for a number of reasons number one people have realized you know maybe we shouldn't be working all the time and get some flexibility and get home to you know family members there is a lot of value to that um technology has also made that a possibility if this was you know the 1950s we couldn't have this conversation um because you just didn't have that top you know that um so i think the cat is out of the bag um i will tell you another way that i really believe this is is that um, i have a number of large architecture firms who build the likes of the tallest buildings the point being the buildings they designing today people are going to walk into in 10 years so in some degree, they are predicting the future. <laughs> and I will <laughs> right. tell you, they are all planning their buildings based on the premise of what you have to do and why, because you, what has changed with hybrid is, you know, initially with hybrid, we brought work home. And now we need em, employers need to bring homework. And they are saying that is what's here to stay, this integration. Um and integration on life leads a lot of things in terms of hybrid. So there's no doubt it's changing. Um, the only question is what kind of hybrid are you going to have as an organization? Yeah. And using uh, that to thrive. Right. Felice, you, I'm sorry. 
No, I was going to say, Mark, um, your listeners can find Thrive with a Hybrid Workplace uh, online at Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And we have a website called Thrive with a Hybrid Workplace. We would love any feedback or thoughts that you have um, about the content, um, because Julie and I are living and breathing this every day, and we are always interested in getting feedback from readers. Well, I'll put links to all of that in the show notes, and I hope people will check out the book. Again, Thrive with a Hybrid Workplace, step-by-step guidance from the experts, Felice Eckelman and Julie Cantor. Thank you both for being here today, for sharing your story and having a great conversation about this. Thanks for talking with you. It's great speaking with you. Thank you, Mark. Well, thanks again to Julie and Felice for being great guests today. To learn more about their book, links to their website, and more, look in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake239. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.